Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34. This week on the podcast, we are speaking with Salem Snow, who is running for office in Pennsylvania's District Number 2. He is a progressive. He has been an activist in the past. And right off the bat, Salem, I want to ask you about your involvement with Occupy, with the Occupy movement. I know that you have publicly stated that that was uh, one of your motivating factors for not only running for office, but for also becoming an activist. Here in New York, protesters are continuing to camp out in a park in the financial district as part of an action called Occupy Wall Street. Democracy Now!'s Mike Burke was at the protest encampment last night and filed this report. We're just blocks from Wall Street and the former World Trade Center. We're in a park called Liberty Plaza, where for the past 13 days, thousands of protesters have gathered. Hundreds have slept here overnight in an unprecedented protest for an action called Occupy Wall Street. Behind us now is the General Assembly, a nightly meeting where the protesters gather to decide what actions should come next. Moments ago, we spoke to some of the organizers behind Occupy Wall Street. My name is Patrick Bruner. Um, I'm 23 years old. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, although I live in Bed-Stuy until, well, until, you know, I can't pay for it anymore, which is going to be next month, and then I'm officially moved in here. Um, and I'm on the uh, press relations working group uh, here at Occupy Wall Street. So what was your connection uh, with the Occupy movement? What were some key uh, things that happened that formed your opinions? So um, I credit a lot of that um, to the 2008 crash, which, you know, as I'm sure you know, was one of the major factors that really um, pushed the Occupy movement. Um, I was not necessarily, I wasn't at the time like an organizer um, involved with Occupy. It was just like when the protests started coming up um, in around 2011, um, it was something that caught my attention and that I actually started following. Uh, I had been uh, politically aware before then, like I'd followed politics, um, you know, just growing up poor and growing up queer, um, you know, your identity is kind of political. Um, But when Occupy happened, it was sort of this realization that like a lot of the struggles that I was facing, particularly because of the crash, um, weren't exclusive to me. Um, So that was when I started kind of having this awakening of, you know, maybe I'm not the only one that's facing, you know, these things. This isn't an individual problem. This is systemic. Um, So that was my first protest. Um, was an Occupy protest, and um, I kind of snowballed my way into radicalism from there. And really, your radicalism isn't so radical. It's just what the country needs. Uh, you know, that was like 2010, 2011, when Occupy was was taking hold in front of Wall Street and expanded to the rest of the country. What's interesting to me is that here we are on 10, 11 years later, a decade later, and the income inequality is actually worse now than it was back then. We look at the data and we see that 80, more than 80% of the new wealth that's been uh, created year after year is going into the 1%'s coffers. They're clearly extracting wealth from the rest of the country. Um, so why is it that you think that this hasn't been addressed by Congress? Uh, honestly, because they don't want to. Uh, Congress can do whatever they want, essentially. They're, they're the primary governing body, you know? 
Um, so they can pass whatever legislation they see fit. They have no problem giving us a nearly, you know, trillion dollar a year military budget. They have no problem finding the money for coups or um, for militarizing the police or interve intervening in other countries. Um, it's only when it comes to addressing social issues, particularly wealth inequality, that Congress seems to push everything to the side, not want to focus on that. And the root cause of that, in my opinion, is largely the money in politics and the entities that are funding uh, our politicians. Right. We have a lot of dark money coming into these campaigns and really corporate interests uh, go into both parties' coffers. It's not just the Republicans. It's the Democrats and the Republicans both. Um, and in fact, you'll see oftentimes the same candidate taking money from the same corporation, right? So they're just they're just going to give seed money to whoever they think is going to do their bidding in Congress. And it is definitely part of why we are at where we are at in the country. Uh, you know, and there's two metrics at play here. You spoke, what we're speaking of now is the wealth inequality. And that's not just income. That's uh, home ownership, assets, things of this nature. And it's definitely the case that, bl that black and brown folks in the country have a far more uh, larger gap when it comes to wealth inequality than they do even income inequality, which is bad enough. So, uh, you know, you could say we're in a second Gilded Age here and that really it's the uh, black and brown communities that are uh, being even more harmed by this. So you have some interesting ideas, I think, when it comes to racial justice and doing something about racial justice. Walk us through part of your platform there. So, OK, um, first, I think it's, a, it's important to point out that racial justice is an intersectional issue. Um, a lot of these issues are, you know. Um, so it comes to, you know, we have to address police, uh, we have to address wealth inequality, we have to address social programs. Um, and in, in my view, I, I believe that we, we desperately need to um, use reparations to get there. Um, you know, that's not a new idea. Um, it's been uh, championed by many others before. Uh, my most recent memory would be uh, either Lee Carter, a delegate in Virginia, um, or Marianne Williamson. Um, both have, you know, put forward ideas about reparations and how they would work. One of the bigger issues that has really resonated with many people from the debates is the issue in and around reparations. Yes. This has been one of your core issues. Why? I've been talking about this since my book came out in 1997. The first enslaved persons all brought over in 1619. Mm -hmm. Slavery not abolished till 1865. That's 250 years, followed by another 100 years of institutionalized violence against black people. That's 350 years of institutionalized violence. That's longer than this country has been in existence. Paying reparations for slavery will not fix everything. But America will not have the future that we want if we're not willing to clean up the past to clean up this original character defect of racism. Whatever it costs, it's time to do this. I'm Marianne Williamson, and I approve this message. Um, so I do think that that's a vital part of it. Um, I believe that we desperately need accountability. Um, we see a lot of violence and oppression coming from police and the police state against black and brown people, uh, particularly the black community. 
And, you know, we've gotten to a point where, you know, police are murdering these folks in broad daylight on camera, and we're still not seeing true accountability and true justice. Um, and, and this is something that's so deep, you know, it's not even, it's just not a police issue. Um, it's in the courts, it's, it's in the people who hold office, it's in the people who have power, because part of, you know, the racist system is the fact that we are still, it's still predominantly white. And we now know um, that racism is a deep issue. It's not just, you know, um, blatant racism. It's not just, you know, slurs or things of that nature. Um, it can be biases, you know, like these things are in the foundation of our society and they're instilled into us at a young age because our society is systemically racist. Um, so there's there's got to be an education front to that and an unlearning, a re-education, you know, a critical race theory, if you will. Um, so it's really something that's got to be tackled on multiple fronts and there's, you know, there's not going to be one, one solution fits all. Right. And I agree with you. Um, let's actually, you, you mentioned critical race theory. Let's talk about that for a second, because this is something that all of a sudden out of nowhere has been making headlines when it comes to folks on the right and uh, in the right wing uh, blogosphere. And it's really fascinating to me to watch this happen because most of them don't understand what critical race theory is even addressing. The point being that, um, you know, racial taxonomies came from biology in the 18th century, right? We now have decoded the human genome. We know that there's no such thing as race uh, in biological terms, yet there is very real social and political damage that has been done because people believe that and they believed in racism and they argued for um, hierarchical, a hierarchical sort of a system, right? which is all hogwash. But that doesn't mean the, the damage that has been done from that belief isn't real. And it also doesn't mean that there are very much um, cultural definitions that can be attached to the ideas of race. So most of the folks, though, on the right that are arguing about critical race theory don't seem to understand those nuances whatsoever. And they're basically going after uh, professors that have worked in this area, studied in this area, and they're trying to... Um, you know, have any kind of conversation about this removed from our public school system. What are your thoughts on that? Honestly, I, I think it's ridiculous. And I think I think it honestly stems from uh, a misunderstanding of what critical race theory actually is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because it's in its simplest form, it really is just, you know, telling all of history, you know, right. looking at history through an inclusive lens, because the way that the United States has largely retold history and taught history in our education system has been based around white people through a white lens. That's right. Um, and all we're doing is saying, hey, maybe we should widen that lens and see what history looks like to other groups who were not in power the entire time. Exactly. And, and I don't think that's a radical idea. I think that's exactly what we should have been doing from the beginning, really. There's nothing really. radical about it, but it's just ridiculous that they're, they're uh, focusing on this one aspect and they're not even getting that aspect correct. It's just exactly. wild to me. I, I mean, like anybody that thinks that we shouldn't examine, you know, our history of slavery, our Jim Crow laws, um, our redlining of mortgages, all of these things shouldn't be examined from a viewpoint other than the white supremacist one is being absolutely asinine. But they don't want to discuss that, right? They want to, you know, sort of uh, steer the conversation in another direction. And of course, that's always by design, right? Because their goal is to keep the white supremacy in its place, right? 
And a lot of that, again, has to do, you know, you, you mentioned the police. You know, their main task half the time is to protect private property. That's it. I mean, you'll see them out at these protests and they're more concerned about what happens to a building or somebody's house versus what happens to an actual human body, which is insane. But that's where we're at. You're right. That's exactly where we're at. Yeah. So uh, you guys, though, there in Philadelphia, you uh, elected a very uh, progressive DA, uh, Larry Kasner, who's out there trying to reform the system. Um, do you think he's making headways? Uh, what's the latest with uh, his uh, work in that area? So uh, first and foremost, just to clarify, I have mixed feelings about okay. uh, Krasner. I will say that, you know, compared to an average DA or even most DAs, he's definitely more progressive. Um, that being said, I do have some problems, um, you know, with some decisions he's made in the past, um, as well as, you know, funding, uh, which is a big thing that, you know, I've, I've hit plenty of politicians and orgs on as, you know, dark money, corporate money, super PACs, that sort of thing. Um, I do think, though, that he's setting a good precedent to build off of, um, you know, for future DAs. Um, but I, I still think that there's, you know, a lot of work to be done on that front. Indeed. What are some of the money issues that you're referencing? Has he been taking uh, corporate money now? Or like, what's the story there? So he actually, uh, the, the whole reason he won his race, well, I don't want to say the whole reason he won his race, but uh, part of that reason is because he had super PACs behind him that dumped, you know, a lot of money, millions of dollars behind him. Um, which, you know, is, is no small number when it comes to an election, um, especially a more local one. Um, and that, that super PAC, um, at least one of them was funded by billionaires. Um, really? You know, yeah. Interesting. Um, so, you know, depending on like, you know, where your scope is on billionaire money and politics, personally, I never think it's a good idea, whether it's dark money, super PAC, et cetera, because I consider that essentially just buying an election, um, which is why I advocate for publicly funded elections, um, because that would, you know essentially, if done correctly, would erase all the, even the potential for these sort of uh, financial problems. Um, but aside from my criticisms, like, like I said, I, I do think that he's, he's opened sort of doors in showing that, you know, even while we're under this oppressive system, there are ways that we can handle this that are not like as aggressive as they've been in the past, not as aggressively racist, as aggressively you know, homophobic, as aggressively anti-protester. Um, but, you know, so I think that's an important precedent, but I, I do think, you know, we could do better. But I, I think that about everybody. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, that's fair. That's yeah. fair, but I did know Krasner had taken uh, money from billionaire super PACs. Why, why do you think that is? What goal did uh, these folks have in mind, do you think, at the end of the day? Did, do they simply just see the writing on the wall where the uh, sort of toughest crime individuals that we've seen kind of commandeering the DA positions across the country the last two decades are, are unpopular now with the general population and they want to have an ear in that uh, arena? Or what, what do you think the motivation is? So um, in my opinion, I think, I think that there are, okay, if, if we're talking about like philanthropists and, you know, um, like super wealthy individuals who contribute to elections, whether it's through dark money, super PACs, or other means. Um, I, I'm not 
I'm not sure, you know, exactly if they think that they're doing the right thing, because if you look at the history of, you know, dark money and like uh, wealthy money in politics, it's really interesting. Um, like dark money really kind of started in a big way uh, with, um, you know, with Republicans, with right wingers. Right. Um, and it's interesting because that sort of you know, there were hits from like the Democrats and from the left on those sort of tactics. Mm -hmm. And then over, you know, the past few cycles, um, we've really seen Democrats really ramp up the dark money and, and the ultra wealthy donors and start to adopt those same tactics, which is really interesting. Um, I know that there's a couple of uh, orgs I've met. I've met with, you know, people that work for these orgs. Um, and they do consider themselves progressive and they kind of have this idea that they can, you know, take ultra wealthy money and, and use it for good in elections, which is what it seems to me was the idea um, with Krasner was, hey, we can affect change and we can use, you know, dark money, um, ultra, the ultra wealthy to get our agenda passed. Um, so I, I think that's the thinking is, you know, adopt the tactics that, you know, work for the right and have them work for the other side of that. So okay. it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, no, it is interesting. Um, and I do agree with you that I don't think any money should be in politics at all. I think it, I think it eventually entirely does corrupt the system to a point where it's no longer a democracy. We at this point are living under a corporate oligarchy uh, because of the uh, never ending cycle of concentration of wealth and power that we've seen in the country. So I, I feel you there. I want to um, shift gears for a second and ask you about trans rights, because this has also been making headlines recently. Uh, just, you know, recently here in Los Angeles, we had a, a situation where we had somebody post a video online that was picked up by Tucker Carlson at the Wee Spa, which is in Koreatown. And it's turned out now that that was uh, not, an, not a true video, what she was saying. Uh, but in the aftermath of that, you now have QAnon folks, you have Proud Boys, um, and I even saw a couple of neo-Nazis um, that showed up at a trans rights uh, rally here at the Wee Spa last weekend, and I witnessed them stabbing people, uh, hitting people in the back of the head with a lead pipe, uh, baseball bats, threatening them with baseball bats. One guy even had this... Uh, God, I don't even know how to describe this. It almost looks like a giant, they look like giant rosary beads. and he, But he had them wrapped up in his uh, hands and he was, you know, lashing out at people with them while calling them abominations. So this is really uh, driven by hatred, an othering kind of a thing. But what really surprised me the most uh, was that there was a certain segment of, of the left, of the liberal population, that was in agreement against trans rights that were also being very bigoted in their commentary. And so apparently, um, you know, I don't know if it's TERFs, which are these, these uh, extreme feminists that, that, that have a problem with trans folks because they see the men as trying to enter the female spaces. None of them seem to understand that, that biological sex, and I don't mean having sex, I mean sex, right? occurs on a variant scale, right? You have X and Y and a whole series of variations in between. I don't think that's a controversial statement in biology yet. Here we are. Um, what are your thoughts on all of this? Because this is uh, something I didn't see as becoming such a, a trigger recently, and it has. Um, and, you know, obviously we also have been seeing these bathroom laws and what have you. What are your thoughts on all of this? And do you, um, do you see it as a problem that's going to keep growing? Or do you think people are be going to become more tolerant 
of others in this arena? So I think, um, so first I want to, I want to just say that the United States is actually behind in LGBTQ protections and LGBTQ rights. Um, which is not surprising because the United States has been behind on, you know, a whole lot of social issues. Um, you know, even in Cuba right now, you know, they have more LGBTQ rights and protections than the United States. Um, so it's, it's interesting. Um, and I think, I think, okay, so homophobia, transphobia, just queer phobia in general is, Another one of these things that I feel like has not been as ex um, explored as deeply as other issues have, and it's kind of gone overlooked, right? A lot of people think, you know, like, oh, well, I don't personally have a problem, you know, with, with gay people or, you know, trans people. So, like, you know, the homophobia is dead. Um, when, in fact, like, this is another both a systemic and a cultural issue. Um, we've had homophobia ingrained into our society um, in a similar fashion as we've seen racism ingrained into, into our society. Um, our society still has to overcome a lot of these preconceived notions um, about, you know, queer people. And, you know, we really haven't moved past that. Um, I, the LGBTQ rights and protections front in the United States has been very slow rolling, despite the fact that, you know, the general population here has had a, a growing acceptance of LGBTQ people very quickly over the past couple of decades, particularly. Um, and, you know, it, I think this also comes down back to an education issue because LGBTQ history and LGBTQ culture is basically non-existent in our mainstream education. Um, we, we don't focus on LGBTQ individuals, their contributions to history, the things they go for, what happens in their culture. And as a result, a lot of folks in the general population, um, especially conservatives, um, just aren't aware of the things that are involved in being LGBTQ and the issues that we face in you know, what we've gone through historically, et cetera. And, you know, educating yourself or educating other people on this topic, is, it has to be one of the first things that we do because we have to understand something in order to understand how to begin to dismantle it and how to put forward solutions. Um, so a lot of this is born out of the fact that we just don't make it a priority right now to be inclusive in our education um, in our communities and, you know, some communities and cities and states are better than others, of course. Um, but yeah, there, I feel like a lot of that comes, comes back down to, you know, dismantling, um, these preconceived notions, um, educating people on LGBTQ issues and definitely installing protections and LGBTQ rights on a federal level, um, that, you know, states can't override. Yeah, indeed. You know, it was what's really wild to me, too, is that this idea that that I thought was gone and passed, but apparently isn't, was that they were using accusations of pedophilia against this trans individual. And, and the, it, it, which is insane to me. There was no pedophilia involved. If there was, then that would be a different conversation. That's just their inborn hatred speaking. Right. They're uh, you know, their way of othering. And a lot of it is driven, I noticed, was driven by uh, religious beliefs uh, at this particular uh, protest I was at. Uh, they were definitely, you know, 
saying things like you're an abomination against God, um, you know, et cetera. So that's, that's definitely a part of it is what I'm saying. And I think um, it's something that we're going to have a hard time getting around because religion is so deeply ingrained in this country. But I was just surprised to see it not, it's something I'm used to seeing um, in conservative circles, not something I'm used to seeing in liberal ones. And apparently uh, this is something that this issue in particular seems to transcend both parties. And it's very disappointing to see that um, from my personal opinion. It, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, yeah, there, there, there's often this idea that, you know, uh, homophobia or transphobia especially um, isn't as prevalent in, in uh, you know, Democrats or, or liberal ideology. Um, but I do think that goes back to the whole lack of education and think, you know, they think that because they don't have a problem, you know, being in the physical presence of like a trans person, for example, that like they're inherently not transphobic when, you know, disagreeing with their existence or that they should have rights or that they should have trans health care is all transphobic. Right. Um, so, so there's this idea, I think, from a lot of liberals um, and especially in the Democratic Party, that they're the good guys. They can't be transphobic. Um, you know, I'm not transphobic. I just disagree with that. They should have, you know, this sort of health care, you know, blah, right. blah, blah. Um, but I yeah, I disagree like, because I believe sex is binary and I'm a feminist, which is exactly like, which is wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's totally wrong. It's like, like, no. And then they're like, and then, you know, some of the responses I got was, well, I'm the one that's believing in science. I'm like, then you don't understand the science because nothing in biology is binary or hardwired. That's not how it works. Exactly. Exactly. It, like I said, it's another, you know, they're not educated on it. Right. They, they think they understand something and, you know, they just haven't looked enough into it. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I just was really disappointed to see some of that. I, and it did, I have to be honest with you, it did take me off guard a little bit. Um, I expect, I expect the extreme Trump supporters to come into my mentions on Twitter and make transphobic statements. What I don't expect to see is folks that I know supported Bernie Sanders to come into my mention and make make uh, transphobic statements. And that was actually happening. So, oh, yeah, yeah, it really kind of took me off guard. Um, anyway, I wanted to also ask you about homelessness, because obviously unhoused in- individuals is something that has been increasing for a while. Um, I think it's a combination of the income inequality we have in the country, coupled with losing uh, protections like uh, rent control laws, et cetera. Um, in Philadelphia, you've had uh, an increase in homelessness and unhoused individuals there as well. So, I mean, it's something we've been grappling with here in California. What are some of your uh, plans in that area? How do we address this better? So, um, actually, one of the core issues on um, our campaign is having housing as a human right, um, which is something that there's plenty of precedent for. It's been done in other countries, you know, multiple times throughout history. It's not some big impossible feat like, oh, how will we ever house anybody? Um, yeah. we, act- <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> we, actually- we have the resources right now to house everyone in the United States and have millions of vacant homes left over. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in a, in a very strictly technical sense, um, you know, disregarding all nuance, um, we don't really have a housing shortage. Housing shortages come, you know, in, in geographic specific um, circumstances. Um, but yeah, so we've, we've had a huge problem um, with the uptick in houselessness in Philadelphia, uh, which is interesting because our city is being gentrified at an alarming rate. Um, 
the city council had a 10-year tax abatement, which was supposed to um, kind of like give developers incentive to develop like new housing, um, but almost none of them are actually putting forward any affordable housing or housing for low-income folks, which is the whole issue to begin with, is that those are the folks that need it. Um, so, you know, like I said, we've seen other countries, you know, come damn near close to abolishing, you know, houselessness and, you know, being the richest country on the planet, we are absolutely within our means to do that. Oh, we absolutely um, are. Exactly. Um, so, you know, there, there's several ways we could technically, you know, go about um, addressing this. Um, you know, rent control laws is, you know, the easiest, the most straightforward. Um, you could even tie that to income. Um, actually, the apartment that I grew up in as a kid with my mom was um, an income-based apartment, was rent controlled that way. Okay. Um, and that's something that we could implement on a federal level easily, um, tying rent to income. Um, if you really wanted to keep you know, the, the capitalist aspect of the housing industry, um, you could still subsidize housing on behalf of low-income folks. Um, there, there's a million different ways that we could really address this. And it, it's just, it's honestly sad and disappointing to see that a government, you know, with our level of power just does not address this issue at all. Right. Yeah, well, they're serving real estate development money, and that is part of the platonomy. I know here in California, a big chunk of our government is bought and paid for by real estate development. And that has led to massive problems in the state. We used to have a, a wealth of rent control apartments. We don't anymore because of a law we had passed in 1995, 1996, around there, called Costa Hawkins, two Democrats. And they basically upended uh, uh, the mu local mun municipality's ability to enact rent control laws. Um, they did grandfather some older buildings and their argument was like, look, these buildings are all grandfathered in. It's fine, there's plenty of affordable housing as long as they exist. But the loophole for developers was, well, I'm just gonna buy the old building, tear it down and rebuild something else and it's no longer gonna be part of the rent control. Um, so that's what they've been doing now for you know well over several decades, and it's becoming um, increasingly worse. And I think COVID really, at the end of the day, just was a rip the bandaid off, right? It made it really clear how bad, uh, what bad shape we are in, because now you have a whole larger segment of the population that lost their jobs, have not been paying uh, rent. We've got the eviction moratoriums coming to an end, and this is just you know it's a giant thing coming at us, and I don't see anybody with any any notions or any inklings of trying to fix it. They just keep kicking the can down the road, you know? We're just gonna extend the eviction. We're not gonna, you know, make it a forgiven debt. So um, we'll see what happens, but I don't see it being addressed. I think this could have very easily been addressed with a UBI at some point, you know, during the Absolutely. year. Like, I, why, why wasn't that ever on the table? I think we're the only country that didn't do this. It doesn't make sense. You're gonna shut down the entire country, but you're not gonna do anything to replace the income from these jobs. I'm not saying it was wrong to shut down the country. It was the right decision. We needed to stop the spread of COVID clearly. But at the same time, why wouldn't you do something to address that? It is well within uh, the government's ability to do so. And they chose not to because again, they're serving the platonomy. They're serving the 1%. Exactly. And, and we saw them, you know, yeah. pass corporate bailout after corporate bailout. Right. So they, exactly. they had the means to, to do things. They were just more worried about the wealthy that already had money in the corporations and not so much the working class. 
Exactly, precisely. Which brings me to something um, that I found very fascinating on your website. I would love to have you walk uh, the audience through your people's bailout. Because, yes, we saw that. Every corporation, every bankster, they all got their bailouts. But the people, where's theirs? Exactly. Um, so the people's bailout is is sort of um, a plan that kind of structures um, a set of policies rather than one, you know, specific policy um, that would have, it's basically what the response should have been uh, for the working class um, in regards to the pandemic. Um, And, you know, a few of it touches on things we've talked about already, um, ensuring housing as a human right, which, you know, if we didn't have that before, then we definitely should have done that, you know, when COVID hit, should have been one of the first things that Congress was doing was securing housing um, for everyone. Um, additionally, there are things, you know, like you said, like UBI, um, there's no reason that we didn't establish that, you know, essentially having ongoing stimulus checks, you know, the government basically showed us that they absolutely have the ability to write checks to everyone and ensure that, you know, we all have money coming in, but they only did that, you know, a couple times instead of ongoingly on a monthly basis, like all these other, you know, first world countries were doing. Um, it also involves things like the immediate inaction of Medicare for all, which again is something the United States is decades and decades and decades behind on. Um, every other first world country has a universal health care system of some sort implemented except for the United States. Um, so it's basically the people's bailout is just doing what, what we were doing for corporations, but doing it for the working class and the working class never had control over any of this. You know, the ultra wealthy Congress, corporations, all of these people were at the top of the economic ladder and needed this relief the least, but they got the most. And that should have been the other way around. So the people's bailout is essentially just um, assuring that anything that is required to live, that is required for life is provided as a human right. Um, including things like utilities um, and the internet, you know, broadband service, which has proven to be a, a need in our modern day society, right. especially as they moved work um, to working from home and um, having kids and other folks who are students being able to continue their education online safely. Absolutely. We need municipal broadband. I don't, I can't believe that that's controversial. And, you know, the upending of net neutrality, really bad idea because we are already seeing the effects of that. You know, they absolutely are. You have Verizon now selling a business package where they prioritize, where they prioritize uh, data packets uh, for those folks signing up for that versus the rest of the population that, that has just a standard Verizon um, uh, subscription every month. So, you know it's like ridiculous this is a utility at this point you cannot survive without the internet so something needs to be done about that too it's just one more way in which the corporate oligarchy is having um it's it's way with with uh, the country and really what's astonishing to me is this idea that if they want to save capitalism if you're if you are a capitalist and you want the country to remain a flourishing capitalist country at some point you're going to have to start giving money back to the working classes, back to uh, the, the vast majority of consumers because our economy is consumption driven. And at this point, the way we have wages suppressed for decade upon decade, there's no savings, the inability to, to buy a house even, uh, to pay for college. Eventually this just kills capitalism because it, the engines that keep it going 
the engines that keep it going is consumption and and people don't have expendable income. So you think at some point they would stop themselves and say, hold up, this could be a problem. Maybe we should pay, pay our workers more. Maybe this idea of $15 an hour is ridiculous and it should be really $30 an hour. And anybody that thinks that's a crazy statement hasn't been paying attention. If, exactly. if wages had kept, uh, kept, uh, kept up with inflation, productivity, what have you, it, $15 isn't it. It's not it. And you can't possibly it's live in a city like uh, Philadelphia or Los Angeles off of $15 an hour. You can't. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I've kind of had this theory for a while now, just, you know, from seeing how the capitalist class operates. And it seems to me that they really don't understand how capitalism works. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they because... just are so greedy they don't care at this point um you know and another part of that could be uh that they're just hoarding so much wealth absolutely hoarding so much wealth that they're not really worried about that day coming because it's not going to affect them anyway exactly and you know it's also interesting because you know so many people make this this argument you know well you can't just like print more money you know if you need more money <laughs> but that's exactly what our government doing is doing anyway. For the corporations, exactly. We're already doing that. Exactly. The banksters, are you kidding me? They print money whenever they need to. So, you know, which is why I thought it was sort of interesting when Jill Stein, when she was running for office, she was talking about using quantitative easing uh, to deal with the student debt crisis. And she got roundly hammered for that. But really, in reality, this was an interesting idea, in my opinion. Anyway, let's shift gear for a minute and talk about your opponent. Um, you are running against Brendan Boyle. He is an incumbent, not only an incumbent in the district you're in right now, but this is uh, he's been in politics for a long time. He, st- he st- served in the state uh, uh, House of Representatives. He was a congressman in a different district before the one he is now. I think that it had to do with them when they ger- re-gerrymandered the state. But mm. needless to say, he's been in politics for a long time. He's an incumbent. Um, but he also talks a progressive game, right? So he says he supports Medicare for all. He says he's for workers' rights, all of these things. So tell me something that separates you from this guy. Is Brendan Boyle all talk and no action? What is his history there? I think we have a long enough record of him being in office to know what he's really about. How do you differentiate yourself from Brandon? So interestingly, he is an... And this isn't exclusive to him. I've noticed this with a lot of um, Philly politicians in particular. Um, they they kind of have this thing, and, and he's not the only one, because I've seen this in other places in Congress, too, where since there's kind of been a progressive insurgence in the last couple cycles, suddenly everybody's a progressive, right? Like, everybody's been progressive all along. Right. Um, and he's kind of one of, those, one of those people that, like, quickly rebranded himself as soon as I started running against him. Um, started trying to, you know, take pictures, make sure the squad was in there, stuff like that. Um, but, like, it's, it, to me, everything comes down to funding, right? And he is massively funded by big oil, you know, Exxon, Chevron. Um, he's funded by um, the weapons manufacturers. He's funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Like, every industry in the book, he's taken money from. Mm. And you know, he has a voting record that actually goes contrary to what he's been talking about most recently. Um, you know, like, how are you going to help deliver us a green deal if you're sitting there taking money from the industry that is preventing us from having that? Exactly. Like, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Um, 
So, and, and, you know, similarly, he, he likes to paint himself as this big, like, you know, women's rights activist, you know, big pro-choice, when in fact, he, you know, supported legislation when he was in the state house that has effectively shut down over 13 um, women's health clinics uh, that provide, you know, not just abortions, but that too. Um, and that disproportionately hurt uh, low-income people, people of color, and to be clear, the legislation that he supported at that time was never undone. So that is still shutting down health clinics in Pennsylvania. Um, but it, yeah, it's interesting. So he, he's kind of one of those politicians, and I'll hand it to him. He's a great talker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he knows all the right points to hit. Uh, it's just like his funding and his voting record doesn't back that up, as well as the fact that you know, he rarely brings substantial legislation to actually he never brings substantial legislation. Um, any legislation he has brought forward has been very showy, um, had zero co-sponsors, was, you know, I wouldn't even call it incrementalist because it was like so small of crumbs. Um, but that's exactly the problem with him is we're living in the poorest district in the state uh, with an average income here of $20,000 or less a year. And we have this, you know, wealthy white guy in the suburbs who is in this one little like wealthy pocket of the, the district that's like making all the decisions and he's not doing anything for all the houseless folks in our district for, for all the people here that don't have health care. And to be clear, this district is definitely disproportionately impacted by all these things. Right. Um, there, there's a park right up the road uh, from, from my house, actually where a lot of the houseless folks kind of have congregated and made their own community, you know, out of need for survivalism. And I have not seen him do anything to address that whatsoever. And there's plenty of, you know, thing policies on the federal level that could be implemented to help people that are in districts like this one. Um, but he just chooses not to do anything about that. So does he remain popular in the district when you are out there talking with potential voters? Are they aware of uh, his shortcomings in the area as far as like all being all talk about the like, I think you're right about the fossil fuel industry. There's no way you can be uh, interested in passing a Green New Deal if you're taking money from Chevron. That's just not possible. Um, so what is the tone in the district? Are people responding to you? Are they understanding that? Yeah, actually, um, a lot of folks here have a pretty decent understanding of that, at least, you know, the, those who, who follow politics, and you know, enough to know who the rep is. Um, I've noticed that there's sort of a, a class break, you know, the, the more financially privileged neighborhoods have a tendency to be like, well, what do you mean? Like, he, he's fine. He's fine. He doesn't do anything wrong. Like, and I'm like, just because you're fine doesn't mean what he's doing is fine for everybody else. Um, and, and, but yeah, among like working class neighborhoods, especially, you know, the poor ones, like people are pretty well aware of who he is, um, of his lack of action. He doesn't spend a lot of time in the district. Mm. Um, most folks haven't really seen him around, you know, when he does town halls, you know, they're always virtual, which is fine, you know, during, you know, during the age COVID, of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he also doesn't take questions everything that's is pre-screened and yeah so that's so bad. yeah he should be taking questions uh, you know there seems to be this uh disconnect that i've seen with a lot of incumbents especially ones that have been in office for a long time i i, I really believe that 
like guys like Bernie Sanders are the exception to this rule in that they don't want to listen to their constituents. They don't think they have any obligation to. It's almost as if they want to be treated as if they are a rock star as opposed to being a public servant. And it's really bad for democracy. These folks need to realize they're, they were put in that office to serve constituents. That's it. Not the platonomy, not your donor class. Um, certainly not corporations that have no vested interest other than making money off of you. Right. But, you know, here we are across the board. Incumbents tend to I'd say 90 percent of them tend to believe that that's not the case. And it's very, um, very disruptive to our democracy. And I wish more voters would realize that. And they, they are. They 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 kind of they isolate themselves. And, and some of that is, you know, part of the the messed up system that we're in. Right. Like I understand Congress has to spend about, you know, half their year in Washington um, and, you know, supposed to spend the other half, you know, in their district um, serving their constituents. Um, but it seems to me, which is interesting because um, I can't remember the title of it right now. There's a book that Obama wrote where he actually had an excerpt where he talked a little bit about his transition from kind of being like a grassroots type candidate into one that was slowly more and more more worried about yeah. the wealthy donors. And he talks about how he how that changed him and how like because of the way the system was set up, he always had to be worried about money. And the easiest way to keep getting money to, you know, sustain a campaign or your political career is to go to the people with money. And that's, you know, the whole problem is that the yeah, people that with money just, run everything. Ah, uh, I just I know it's so painful to hear that. Uh, no, that's that's exactly wrong, Obama. That's exactly what you should not be doing. <laughs> Um, you know, I understand that it's hard to get elected without money, but that's not an excuse. At some point, at some time, people need to realize that we have to break that cycle. And I think Bernie Sanders really, I mean, not to not to harp on this, but I think he did prove that that's not necessarily the case. You know, most of his campaigns, no, not most, all of his campaigns have been funded, funded by grassroots as opposed to corporations. Has he won every election he's running? No. But he's run enough of them to make a really big difference in this country. And I think his legacy in this country will far outlive anything Biden does. Uh, and I think anybody that thinks that's controversial really isn't paying attention. He created a movement that is still going strong in this country. And it has everything to do with what we're discussing here today, right? Um, so just my two cents on that. I, I wanted to mention, you know, like another example would be that he signed on to the... Uh, the Medicare for All bill as a co-sponsor, right? Do you know where he stood on that issue when he was uh, serving in the state uh, House of Representatives? Are uh, you talking about Boyle? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Yes, Boyle. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't think that was something he platformed very much at the time. Uh, he started kind of like having this idea of reforming health care uh, more of when he was starting to tra- try to transition into the federal Congress. Um, he, he's very much been, uh, what I call a safe Democrat. He's never gone, you know, what would be radical, you know, in comparison to the average Democrat. Um, I mean, he's a ways and means Democrat. Um, so he's never really, actually, he's never really adequately addressed anything that is, you know, life sustaining climate, um, healthcare, any of that. Um, he, most of his outspokenness at all is newly developed um, in the past couple cycles. He was one of those really quiet incumbents that just kind of, you know, 
sat in his seat, you know, was a, a good Democrat, so to speak. Right. Um, and, but, you know, suddenly when you get challenged, you're the most progressive person in Congress. So, <laughs> Which is ludicrous. Let me ask you on that note about Connor Lamb. Uh, I'm curious to know what your thoughts were when he ran initially because there was this whole argument about uh, Connor being a very conservative Democrat and he was running against a much more uh, progressive candidate, which is true. And the argument back then was that the more progressive candidate couldn't possibly win a general election. I don't think that's even remotely the case. I think in many cases we've seen the opposite happen, right? Um, but could, Connor, he might as well be a Republican, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on all that? So I first, uh, like, maybe this is an unpopular opinion among people running for office or politicians. I don't know. Um, but I'm really tired of this, like, viability test thing. Like, because a lot of people went with that argument when it was between Biden and Sanders, too. Like, oh, I like Bernie. I like what he says. I like that he's not corporate funded. But, you know, Biden can can beat Trump. Yeah. So now, you know, can like, I just interrupt you for a second? Because that just really chaffs my hide. I agree with you. And in many <laughs> cases, I think Bernie Sanders would have won by a much larger margin. But they were making that argument. And the reality is, is Biden only won because Trump really screwed up on coronavirus. Like, absolutely. That was the final straw. Biden is not popular. This wasn't this wasn't an endorsement of Biden and his policies. It was just an endorsement of how much people hate Trump. Anyway, exactly. On. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's an excellent point. Um, and I think that the whole viability um, argument and mindset is purposefully pushed by the establishment, establishment politicians, etc. Uh, it's just another argument that benefits their candidate. Right. Like. And, and we really have to be critical of anything that benefits the establishment. Um, I can't think of any argument, you know, that is reasonable and sound that actually like sides with, you know, establishment corporate Democrats. Um, so and another thing is this this constant worry about, you know, viability, especially uh, among um, a reasonable, so to speak, or pragmatic progressives or whatever you want to call them. Um, it's just a candidate's only like not viable until they win. Like yeah. this always happens. <laughs> Wait, with can you repeat that? Because like, it's true. Yeah, a absolutely. Is only unviable until they. Uh, be, you're right. And guess and, what, and voters? You can change that. Exactly. You know, if you see the way, you know, regardless of however anybody feels about them, if you look at the grassroots funded politicians in Congress, especially in the Democratic Party. Almost all of them, if not every single one of them, were outraised by the corporate politicians that they were running against. But the grassroots candidates always won with a fraction of the money fundraised. So it's very possible to, you know, beat out like, you know, corporate incumbents that have been there for 30 years that have, you know, a few million dollars on hand. Like, you can unseat them with, like, 100,000. You know, last cycle we saw, you know, multiple candidates come within points of unseating corporate politicians, and they only had, like, a few thousand, a few ten thousand dollars, and they're right. going against people with over a few million. So I think the viability argument is just something we need to go ahead and throw in the trash because that's been disproven over and over again. Oh, I Salem, I agree with you 100%. And in fact, 
What's interesting to me about uh, noticing these differences is if you look at the the funds that are coming from these uh, grassroots candidates, yes, it's a lower amount, but it's far more donors, donors. And each one of those donors represents not only a voter, right, that agrees with this candidate's positions and wants them to win, but also somebody that's going to go walk the pavement as a volunteer, right, and canvas and do all of these other things. When you're taking like a, a large chunk of money from a fewer groups, whether they be philanthropists or corporations, what have you, wealthy elites, the, it might be a total larger dollar amount, but it doesn't necessarily um, equate to more votes, right? It, re, it, it, it It's an attempt to buy ad time that you can use to maybe go after the other candidate. Um, and if you're lucky, something might blow up as a surprise that you can use to your benefit. But generally speaking, uh, these arguments of viability are really shitty. I agree with you. They make absolutely no sense. It's the reason that the um, establishment Democrats, the DNC, had to step in on Super Tuesday and ask all of these other candidates to drop out. They knew they weren't going to beat Bernie Sanders. They they exactly. went to that. They went to the map to this this nineteenth billionth extreme position because they had no other opportunities or choices. Their goal was to beat Bernie Sanders, and that's new, and they knew that that was what they had to do to get that done. And it's unfortunate because in the trade off, they continue to alienate, you know, uh, left wing voters, which is eventually going to blow up in their faces. You know, you've seen the amount of um, voters that identify as Democrats becoming a smaller amount year after year. And most of the time, it's not that people are no longer left wing. They are. They're just fed up with what the DNC represents and does. Uh, so I don't know when that reckoning is coming. I thought it was going to come sooner than now, but I still think it is coming. And there is still a uh, very much a um, proxy battle going on within the Democratic Party, within the left side of the country, uh, in regards to whether or not you have a progressive candidate that, that supports true working class policies, democratic socialism, uh, versus the corporate elites that just want to cater to the, um, you know, the 20% of wealthy individuals that represent a smaller amount of the party, but have much larger influence simply because they have money. So here we are, right? Uh, so 2021, uh, man, I don't see it as shaping up as much of a better year than 2020. <laughs> We're still, uh, you know, dealing with COVID issues. I know that things are, uh, you know, opening up. People are getting back to work, what have you. We have the Delta variant uh, increasingly becoming a problem, although nobody really wants to discuss that. Um, and, you know, and it's July. It's the end of July now. So we're going into August. Um where do you see the rest of this year going? And are you going to be pivoting in your campaign in any way? So as far as the rest of this year goes, it's honestly, I, like, I don't even know if I want to speculate. Like, it's yeah. been such a fluctuating, like, we're closing, we're opening, we're closing, like, all across the country, different states doing different things, different cities having different things, um, which, honestly, I think is part of the problem. Um, yeah. You know, there were there were other countries that like, you know, shut down at the beginning, paid their people to stay home, like got vaccines out and then like, you know, more or less tried to go back to normal. Um, but, you know, even with those varying results, most of those have had much better outcomes than what we had here. Like our our response to COVID was, you know, lackluster doesn't even begin to cover it. It was a stupid lack of response. Yeah. Um, 
And I don't really feel personally like, you know, Biden stepped up enough and did enough also like better than Trump is like, like, what is that? That bar is in hell. That bar is so um, low. Exactly. <laughs> better than Trump is not a bar, folks. It's just not. I it's mean, not. That is just too low. It's low. It's, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And so honestly, like, I, I, I don't even want to speculate to how that's going to go yet. Um, I will say that, you know, um, as far as our campaign goes, our number one priority is to keep people safe. Um, even when we kicked off our campaign earlier this year, we did so without any, you know, big event. Um, just because to me, like, you know, campaign events and that sort of thing, putting like people at risk, having a bunch of people in the same area, um, is just not worth it. Um, you know, even if it, I don't think that's enough to, you know, determine the outcome of an election, but even if it were, I'd rather lose an election than put folks in my community at further yeah, risk. I hear you. Um, so, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll uh, continue to take things like slowly, very carefully, um, you know, interacting with folks and voters as much as possible um, while also having safety as our main priority. Yeah, that's good to hear because I worry about that. And, you know, I know it's harder to run a campaign online. Um, it's much easier to be able to knock on doors every day and, and, you know, shake hands and what have you. But it is, I just don't think it's, we're at a space where that's necessarily um, entirely safe at this point. It's, I think we're still in flux in many ways. Um, Salem, let me ask you this. Is there any part of your uh, platform that we haven't discussed that's really important to you that you want to talk about? Um, trying to think here. I, I think the only thing, I, I think we touched on this. Uh, the only thing I can think right offhand that, you know, we didn't go into like, you know, deep talking about is just, you know, U.S. interventionism in other countries. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that. You're <laughs> right. I mean, we have Cuba on the map this week. And I think it's in, uh, look, I think it's incredibly disingenuous for a lot of these folks like Ted, Ted Cruz, Mark, Marco Rubio, right? They're trying to make the argument that that the Cubans want freedom, that they need to be, um, you know, self-governing, self-this, you know, but which is just a disingenuous argument because the United States has been doing nothing but interve intervening in the Cuban government for decades. The embargo has gone on. The entire point of the embargo is to bend the will of the Cuban people to that of what the U.S. government wants, what U.S. government uh, business interests wants. I don't think that's controversial up for debate. So it's absolutely ridiculous to make this argument, in my opinion. Um, now, on the flip side, do I think that Cuba would benefit from having more civil liberties as far as like press freedom? You know, they don't have an equivalent of the First Amendment there. Yes, absolutely, of course. But these things are not mutually exclusive. And we cannot erase all of the benefits that we have seen uh, this, this Cuban government bring to the poor people in that country. They've, they've actually accomplished quite a lot, including um, almost 100% literacy in, this, in, uh, in Cuba. So... Again, complex um, conversation. It's not so always so black and white, but of course, the American business interests want it to be black and white, and uh, they sort of self-select for what Cubans they want to listen to, when in reality, most of the Cubans that came to the United States um, after the revolution came here because they were aligned with American business interests, because they were part of the wealthy elites in the country, and they lost out in the revolution, right? So that's there's so many parts of this conversation that don't get discussed by the media or by politicians, right? So um, what are your two cents on Cuba? I'm glad you brought this up. So I actually think, first of all, I, I find uh, the way that politicians want to respond is very interesting. 
um, that right, like as soon as there's like this, this um, you know, protest that is, you know, remotely aligned with American interests, yeah. you know, the, the U.S. government is suddenly like, oh, we need to go up in there and help them. Like, right. oh, look at what they're doing to protesters. And I'm like, what about what y'all did to protesters here? I, like, I know exactly. Oh, Are you kidding me? Like, where, where were y'all then to like intervene? Like, I mean, even last year in Philadelphia, I was part of a protest where we got gassed by the police yeah. and like what happened from that like where where was the federal government to say oh my god we need to address this like where was the federal government when you know blm activists at protest literally got kidnapped like where was the federal government during any of these things happening in its own country it's interesting because it never wants Sheer to hypocrisy. exactly they never want to help the people of their own country but as soon as like anything happens that remotely like aligns with their interests in another country they're like oh we need to hop right in there and help these people but because you know they don't really want to help these people they want to preserve american business interests that's what's exactly. happening and i don't understand why that's not obvious to everybody you know the blm statement that came out this morning in regards to cuba i didn't think it was anything remotely controversial every point being made about the embargo is true yet you know true. The, yet ted cruz is going to scream Marxism, Marxism, communism, communism, blah, you know, it's like, it's insane to me. It's so disingenuous. I, I love how non-interventionism is equated to Marxism. That's my favorite thing ever. <laughs> like, what? It just doesn't make sense. It's like, they don't even, I don't think any of them have actually read Karl Marx's book. Like, you, none of them know what that even means, which makes it even more funny to me. I know. You know what I mean? It's like, Okay. <laughs> Anyway, so what are which what other thoughts do you have on that? Any other ones or? Um, primarily that like basically the United States has ha- has a lot of balls when it comes to like this sort of thing. You know, critiquing other countries the way they do things. Um, to, uh, you know, which is fine in itself. I'm all a fan of criticism, but you know, when you when you're an entity that just wants to like in- involve yourself in everybody else's business, like oh, we need to take care of those people. But every time the United States get gets involved, like you know, nine times out of 10, they're not really helping anybody. They're making things worse. Like we've literally installed like dictatorships in other countries just because it benefited like American business. Like that's not helping working class people here. That's not helping working class people there. Like, and then, you know, after, you know, U.S. interventionism, things go bad there. People are in danger. Then they have to flee, you know, and it's so bad. You think about it, like, you know, they complain about like the migrants that come here. And I'm like, dude, this is your fault. Yeah, like exactly. You created you created the circumstances that were so bad that they had to flee to the people that were responsible for it to try to get away from it. Like it it's just it's incredible to me. Like the United States government has really set up this this cyclic imperialist system of getting involved in other countries. Um, it, you know, just smearing them to death using the CIA, uh, whatever they need to do to install their own puppets. Anybody that will be more friendly to American business and American corporations gets priority. Uh, yeah, no lie detected. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you there. Um, Salem, where do people go if they want to donate to your campaign? So our website is www.salemforcongress.com. There's a donate link on there, as well as um, a a platform outline of uh, the basic policies we support. 
Uh, there's also a little about blurb so they can get a little bit more background. And um, of course, there is contact information on there as well uh, if they want to get in contact and ask any further questions. And what is your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle is Salem for Congress with the number four. And all of our other social medias are the same. Excellent. Thanks for talking with us today.